Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to a special edition of Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Steven Glicker, and in this special edition, I'm sitting down and interviewing the Pathfinder Creative Director, James Jacobs. James has been around over 30 years. He has been involved in the world of D&D and Pathfinder, and we sit down and talk about a whole bunch of topics. Of course, we talk about the new Pathfinder Adventure Path, Return the Rude Lords. We also touch on a whole bunch of things throughout his career. We discuss the creation of the Adventure Path concept, which he helped originate at Dungeon Magazine. We talk about his work on Age of Worms, the Red Hand of Doom, Expedition to the Runes of Greyhawk, Burnt Offerings, what to expect on the upcoming Adventure Path, The Tyrant's Grasp, and a little bit about the first Adventure Path for Pathfinder version 2. We talk about a whole bunch of things, as you guys can see. So this is actually the first episode of Year 2 of the Roll for Combat podcast, and I wanted to treat you guys with something special. So sit back and relax and enjoy my interview with James Jacobs. So this is Steven Glicker from Roll for Combat, and I have James Jacobs, the creative director for Pathfinder from Paizo, who's also going to be talking about Return of the Rune Lords and all things Adventure Path with me here today. Hello, James. Hey there. How's it going? Good to be on. Yes, yes. I've actually wanted to have you on for a long time because you have been around for a quite a while. Isn't it true that you actually got published at the ripe old age of 16, your very first adventure? Yeah, it was 16, 15, something like that. It kind of blurs together because when I started, it was back in the Dungeon Magazine uh, issue 12 that I got my first uh, published credit. And uh, I started, I guess, a year before. And it's such a long turnaround from writing to publication. So I think it was 15 when I started writing and 16 when it was published. So your name is just everywhere. It's one of those names you just, everyone sees James Jacobs all over the place from the very beginning of D&D all the way up to now the well the end of Pathfinder version 1 and starting with Pathfinder version 2. Yep, been around for a while, that's for sure. So before we get into Return of the Rune Lords, I just wanted to ask what is your role as the creative director of Pathfinder exactly? So, it's basically uh the guy in charge of the the fiction part of it. So we've got the design team, which is led by Jason Bullman, and they're in charge of all of like the rules and the mechanics of the game and all that. But the creative direction side of thing is more focused on the world side of things. So um, I will be approving all of the book outlines that people produce. Um, I'll be working with the design team to make sure that they are the rules are, are working with the world that we've got. I do a lot of the, uh, the the high concept by creating a lot of like the content of the world, uh, working with Eric Mona a lot as our chief uh, creative officer, and our development team to just basically shepherd all of the uh, the, the flavorful content that uh, we we put into Galarian and all of our products. One thing I wanted to talk about is obviously we're going to be talking about adventure paths and Return of the Rune Lords, but from what I understand, at your time at Dungeon Magazine. You were one of the people who came up with the concept of adventure paths in general. And can you talk about how that came about? Yeah, that was, um, I think it was Chris Young's uh, who actually came up with the the initial idea to do basically a serialized first level to 20th level uh, campaign in Dungeon. And uh, I had been, by that point been writing quite frequently, doing stuff with uh, with uh, other editors like Chris Perkins and 
so they came to me and talked to me about they were doing this big, you know, uh, Shackled City, a, a whole series of, of linked adventures and asked me if I wanted to pitch in. And of course I did. So at that point, it really wasn't super organized. It was a case of like Chris Perkins wrote the first adventure and then they gave me that adventure and I read it. And then I basically did sort of an exquisite corpse type thing where I wrote the next adventure. And then I gave that to, I think it was Dave Noonan wrote the next adventure and it kind of evolved organically along the way. And we learned a lot about that. I came on, uh, was hired onto Paizo pretty much right after I finished my first adventure for Shackled City. So I was there not quite from the start of it, but from basically part two on. So yeah, because Shackled City is the first, quote, official adventure path. And I remember, because Dungeon Magazine is like one of my favorite magazines of all time. And I was, I was physically upset when it was canceled. I love that magazine so much. But the one I talk about all the time is the second adventure path, Age of Worms, which I say over and over again that that was the greatest adventure path to date by far. Nothing has even come close just because the sheer insanity of Age of Worms. And I'm going to say we can spoil it because it's like 12, 13 years old. So I'm going to I'm going to say the statute of limitations is over. We can talk a little bit about it. But you do insane things in that. I mean, you actually find a rod of seven parts. You fight doppelgangers. You go to the city of Greyhawk. You hang out with Tensor. You find the hand of Vecna. You fight Dragotha. You fight a god. I mean, it's like, okay, oh, you want to do something really cool? Like get cloned or become um, like, you know, get taken over by a uh, doppelganger? Yeah, we have that in here. Like every cool thing ever in the history of D&D was in this adventure path. Yeah, that's really um, a side effect. Eric Mona was the one that originally wrote the the outline for uh, Age of Worms. And the initial very, very first concept was that it was going to be a 20-part adventure path with one adventure per level. And it was like there was all these dungeons and stuff in there. And we sent that over to Wizards of the Coast for approval. And they actually gave us some really good advice where it's like, we don't want to do that. People, they they figured we'll get tired if it went on for you know almost two years. Uh, so they suggested we, you know, tone it back to a, a year-long adventure path focus mostly on multiple levels so that we don't do one per and uh, the end result i think uh, speaks for itself it was a uh, it was really fun to work on it was the first one that we ever actually built an outline from start to finish and so we were able to seed in a lot of like foreshadowing and uh anticipation type stuff we were able to pace it out a lot better than shackled city. we learned a lot with shackled city and put all that to the test really in in age of worms yeah, and in Age of Worms, not only that, you have the craziest writers on this. You have Eric Mona, Mike Merles, Sean K. Reynolds, Jason Bowman, Richard Pete, who wrote two, which and that's insane alone because he's he's nuts. Uh, Greg Vaughn, you, Tito. I mean, it's like a who's who. Everyone, everyone who wrote one of these, it's, it's just nuts. Yeah, we uh, Dungeon at the time was the only place that was really doing a lot of adventures for for D anD D, and so we got a lot of people. We had a we had a really good, strong relationship with Wizards of the Coast at the time, and uh, a lot of us who worked at Paizo there had worked at Wizards of the Coast as well. So we were able to get a lot of people excited about it, and uh, uh, it was a it was a really cool mix of like people who've been around for a while, and back at that point, like Greg Vaughn and Richard Pett and Tito, they were pretty new writers and so they were just getting their their start on the thing so it was like a, it was a good mix of uh, the old and the new at the time and now they're all old so it's like you said 12 years ago so you wrote adventure number 11 into the worm crawl fisher and i'm i want to talk about it only because you have perhaps the most epic fight i've ever seen ever that you fight dragotha a cr 27 red dragon Draco Lich, not a Draco Lich, the, the Draco Lich, who was the consort to Tiamat. And that is just the craziest fight I've ever seen. One of the really fun things about working on uh, Dungeon Magazine was that we got to play with all of the, the, the legacy of Dungeons and Dragons. And especially for something like the long-term format of campaigns for Shackled City, Savage Tide, and Age of Worms, we really got to dive into a lot of the history of all of that. And like Dragotha was just a little drawing up in the corner on the map of White Plume Mountain, and there really wasn't a lot more about him. So it was always something that I had personally been just fascinated by, combined with the Wormcrawl Fisher, which didn't have much about it uh, back in, I think, uh, one of the earlier Greyhawk uh, campaign settings. So 
it was just a chance for me for for that case of diving in and, and doing something, giving back to D and D some of the excitement and and uh, you know wonder that it gave to me when I was growing up a gamer. And yeah, I mean, you get to fight. It's like the ultimate dragon. And then the treasure hoard is the biggest treasure <laughs> hoard I've ever seen. It's an entire page. I'm looking yeah. at it now. It's 2,500,000 copper pieces, 360,000 silver, 48,000 gold, 2,500 platinum. It's like, oh, yeah, 50 masterwork weapons, 20 masterwork suits, you know, plus five. Go, a ghost touch chain shirt, adamantium this, adamantium that. It's just ridiculous. It's there's endless. like artifacts in there, and and like that was a really fun treasure hoard just to make because um, I figured that if you were killing Dragotha, one of the one of the most famous the uh, dragons in the game, that you should feel like getting the treasure from this dragon is memorable, and that's one of the things that uh, I really try to do a lot with with significant treasure hoards like the Dragothas is, is put a lot of detail into it so that it's as much fun looking at the loot as it is fighting the the guy that is guarding it, guarding it. Yeah. I mean, you even write that it's like, Oh, Dragotha has been around for 2,500 years and is a level 27 dragon. So he's going to have the biggest treasure hoard ever. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't really worried at that point about like, you know, breaking the economy of the game. Cause it's already at the very end of the campaign. There's not a lot more to, to, um, to do in the future. So. Yeah, that was just it's it's just everything about this. It's like everything you fight, even getting up to Dragotha, their stats are a page long. Like the Lich you fight, he's got a page just of spells alone. Yeah, those definitely uh, those old stat blocks got pretty enormous. Like the very last adventure, Caius's stat block I think was like three pages long, if I remember. Igwills was pretty immense in Savage Tide. Um, to a certain extent, it's fun building those giant stat blocks because it just makes it feels epic. It feels like a significant, you know, addition to the game. But it's also a case of once you get to that character and you're running it, it can be pretty overwhelming to run them. And uh, I think a lot of GMs get nervous about you know not doing them justice or not using everything that they present. And when it really comes down to it, a lot of combats are only going to last for like three or four rounds. So a GM shouldn't be too worried about making sure that the monster gets to use every single one of its abilities. Just pick and choose the ones that you think are going to be the most fun for your game and, and it'll work. Yeah. That's, I always remember that one. Cause it was like, cause it kept getting, what I liked about age of worms is not only do you get to do like everything you've ever wanted to do in history and D and D, but you just keep fighting every epic creature ever in the game. And then it just keeps going. And then you start fighting the legendary creatures and then you fight gods it's like okay it just never stops it just keeps it keeps ramping it up it goes to 11 if you will oh yeah yeah we kept trying to get the tarask in there too and uh, we never really figured out how to put him in there i tried again in savage tide i've been trying to get the tarask into an adventure path pretty much the entire time and, and he's just a tricky guy to to finagle Return of the Rune Lords, you got you got plenty of opportunity. We might right? Maybe? Yeah, sort of. I mean, by this one of the things uh going on with Return of the Rune Lords is that um it's very much something that we've built over the last decade. And as I've continued working on Pathfinder and all of that, I kind of, you know, scratched my D D legacy itch back in the dungeon days. And right now I'm really interested in uh putting a lot of the stuff that we've done into the adventures and all of that. Uh we certainly have the Tarask in our world. But there's other creatures in there that are they're just as enormous, just as legendary at this point, because they've been around for for, you know, 10 years or so. And so there's certainly uh, I don't want to get too spoilery about Return of the Rune Lords, but the Oliphant of Jandalay is on the cover of the last volume. So that's kind of its own spoiler in, in and of itself, which is one of our big, bad, enormous, gargantuan in the world monsters. So I do want to talk about that, but I do want to talk about a few more. Because my friends would kill me if I didn't get the chance to talk about this. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we have Expedition to the Runes of Greyhawk, which is also one of the most loved adventures of all time. And you wrote that with Jason Bowman and Eric Mona. So you three writing a Expedition to the Runes of Greyhawk. It, what was that like? Because that sounds like a party all the time. It was pretty awesome. I mean, it's... It's to, there's a few things that I could point to as being like the culmination of everything I wanted to do for Dungeons and Dragons. And that is certainly one of them. Um, working on Mori Castle for Dungeon 112 was another one that comes to mind. But for um, Expedition of the Ruins of Greyhawk, 
by that point, uh, Wizards of the Coast already knew that we at Paizo, Eric and Jason and I were huge Greyhawk fans, probably bigger fans of Greyhawk, more knowledgeable about Greyhawk than anyone at Wizards of the Coast at the time. And so they'd already done a couple of the other return to hardcover adventures and they came to us and offered us the chance to work on this one. And we, <laughs> of course we jumped on it and kind of sat down and split up uh, who would be doing what, started working on a plot line. And they really kind of gave us, you know, blank check to do whatever we wanted with the plot line. So we were able to weave in a bunch of like Easter eggs to the adventure pass we did in Dungeon, bring in a bunch of just stuff from all over the place and uh, really do the best we could to, you know, honor the tradition because it's 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 like the original Dungeon. We didn't want to mess it up. And the you just actually mentioned um, Moray's Castle. And yeah, that's considered like the very first mega dungeon. So you did so you just only helped invent adventure paths and mega dungeons because I forgot that you worked on that too. And that is that's classic. And that's a, that's a fantastic dungeon. Yeah, Mori Castle is is one of my favorite. The old uh, Mordenkainen's fantastic adventure is it's a really sh relatively short adventure. It's just basically a dungeon called through three levels, and uh, it was just so much imagination in there that rob coons put in when he was writing it and it's it's always inspired me i've run it like three or four times and every time it's it's been a blast running it so a lot of the uh the dungeon magazine stuff and working with wizards of the coast was just a, a great chance for me to take all of the stuff that inspired me you know when i was just starting to play dnd &D and getting into the the industry and all that and kind of expand on it and give back and hopefully inspire a bunch of new people to you know keep going with it so and then that castle, you kept adding more levels because I know as soon as so funny, you say issue one twelve, which I literally have on my uh, bookshelf next to me because that was like one of the big issues. There was a lot in that issue, and then you guys just kept adding more and more levels, and those levels are really dense. There's a lot, and they're hard. There's a lot of craziness that goes on in that castle. I think you even have a, a disclaimer saying like, "Oh yeah, you you can easily die. Like this is a very hard adventure." And if I remember correctly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, we had eventually wanted to do basically the entire dungeon. We had all these levels planned out. And the idea was that every time we launched an adventure path, we get Rob to write a new level. Um, and then we put that in there. And so we've got one at the start of Age of Worms. We got one at the start of Savage Tide. And then, of course, uh, fourth edition came along and, and we went into Pathfinder. So that's kind of we got we got three levels in or yeah, three. We got one level, one new level in the in the first one and then a couple others. So it's pretty good stuff. And then finally, I know a lot of my friends call Red Hand of Doom, which you wrote with Richard Baker, their favorite adventure of all time. I know a lot of people think that that's an excellent adventure. So, and in fact, it's been noted like a lot of the best of lists. They always talk about it. So, what made that one's like? What what made that one work that people like it so much? Um, that's a good question. I think. Part of it was that the sheer size of the adventure at the time, Wizards wasn't really doing any big adventures, and uh, that one came out. It was it was meaty, it was huge, it was significant. You know, it was its own campaigns and it had its own setting and everything. Um, Rich came up with the the old the overall plot for the entire thing, and he was originally going to write the whole adventure, and uh, then he got uh, pulled off onto uh, doing some other emergency design work at Wizards, and they hired me to basically come in and write the remainder of the adventure. I wrote, I picked up Rich, Rich's notes, which covered from the start of the adventure up through, I think the Hydra, if I remember correctly, in the swamp in the first uh, section of the game. And then I basically filled out the rest of the, the 70, 80% of the last of the adventure, building off of his you know rough notes and like design goals of like introducing new types of dragons, having something to do with Tiamat. Spoiler alert, there's something to do with Tiamat in this one. And, um, Basically, just trying to build up a big epic uh, adventure. So I think it's just a case of everything hitting at the right place at the right time. Yeah, I know a lot of people. I think a big part of it because it is a 128-page adventure, and at the time they're like, you know, just adventures just weren't that big. If you look back at the old first edition D and D adventures, people like fondly remember them. They're like so little. There's like nothing in them. The, the thing to remember with those first edition adventures is that was all there was for D&D &D to buy. You had the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, you had the Player's Handbook and the Monster Manual. And um, it was years before they started doing anything other than hardcover monster books. Um, and the only thing really that came out 
for the game or the adventures. They created sort of a shared experience so that everybody, you know, played um, uh, caves, went through the Caves of Chaos or explored White Plume Mountain or, or died in the Tomb of Horrors. And uh, people were able to go to conventions and have this, you know, this shared experience, be able to talk about it. And um, I think that adventures are, you can make the rules of the game as exciting or not exciting, but as, as you know, with as many options and um, choices for your characters as you want, but without a story to use those choices in, it doesn't really do much. You know, uh, the adventures are where you, you build the memories and, uh, you know, have, have the, you know, the stories of the game. So I think that adventures are, are fundamentally important to the long-term health of any role-playing game. Yeah, it's funny because everyone, even to this day, we still talk about like White Plume Mountain, like everyone's done White Plume Mountain and how they get past like the last part and Black Razor. And I mean, it's just, there's, again, it's all this shared experience. Like you said, everyone has a common language that they can talk about. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's, it's that adventures not only give this common language, but they inspire you. I mean, you see something that happens in an adventure, be it something that another writer has written or something that arises organically from play. The entire concept of the nation of Thassalon is basically the result of a TPK in a game of White Plume Mountain that I ran back in college. Something else I wanted to touch on real quick. You also helped write two of my favorite Pathfinder books because we ran Iron Gods. So you wrote the technology guide, and then you also wrote a Numeria guide as well. Yeah, the, um, that was something that I've been wanting to get off. The, the, I'd, let me back up a little bit. Iron Gods was one of the very first adventure paths I wanted to work on. I even had the title like way back during uh, when I was working on Burnt Offerings. I had like a little spreadsheet of all of these different ideas. And Iron Gods and I think Jade Regent were the only two that I had actual names or locked in from the very start. And so it took forever to get there because in order to make Iron Gods work, we needed to have all these rules for technology and everything. And uh, a lot of the basic rules for like how lasers work and, and, and how all of these technological items interact with the fantasy setting and everything was something that I've been working on for years already with this sort of homebrew post-apocalyptic game that I'd, I'd been building and running and rebuilding and running and rebuilding and running. And so I already had my headspace in that whole area of how science fiction and fantasy kind of intersect and interact. So I was able to basically build pretty much all of the um, uh, the technology guy with some uh, help uh, in there from Rust doing a bunch of the, the back stuff with like artifacts and super powerful stuff. When Iron Gods was announced, I wouldn't say we're bored of adventures or, or like fantasy but we were bored of fantasy you know it's like every time you do fantasy adventures it's the same thing you always get like a uh, cloak of protection you always get you know you always get the same gear and when you've been playing for 30 plus years it does get a little rote and then as soon as yeah. Iron gods it's like everything was different it was like nothing worked the same way it was like a, it was almost a new system in a weird way when we played yeah, that's definitely uh, one of the things that we were. I was I was excited to explore was just how this new concept of how technology works and all that. And it's one one thing that we really try to do with our adventure paths is we do two of them a year, and um, you can't really play two of them in a year, a year unless that's all you do. So we basically will do one that's sort of like a safe fantasy type option. Then the next one will be something more experimental, whether it's like, you know, iron gods or it's all pirate ship, which is kind of experimental, or it's, it's a lot of like, or you're playing evil characters or stuff like that. And uh, we do try to mix it up so that you don't have that standard fantasy experience every single time. But at the same point, that is the most popular type of game to play. So we've constantly got new people joining and, and coming to the system and all that. So we want to make sure that they always have something to, to go back to. But even this was sort of like almost a jumping off point for Starfinder because when Iron Gods was announced, you know, we played it and we just loved it. We loved having technology in our fantasy. You know, it's like science fiction in our fantasy. It was like, it was so much fun. It just was all new. It was like a big breath of fresh air. And just even fighting those type of monsters. Everything was new again. And then you see a lot of what was seen in the technology guide in Starfinder. So was that intentional or was that just sort of a happy coincidence? Um, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I have... I've done very little direct work on um, 
on Starfinder. I drew the map for Absalom Station and I did, I've statted up, I think, three monsters in Alien Archive 2. And that's the sum total of my design work and input really on Starfinder. It's, it's pretty much handled by an entirely separate team. But when they were building it, uh, they definitely were looking at Iron Gods and all of the technology rules and uh, items in there and drew, I mean, it, it, it's stuff we already own. It's stuff our, our you know, customers and gamers were already familiar with and, and enjoyed. So it made sense to build off of that uh, content when they were building up you know, Starfinder. So who also made Numerian Fluid? I'm just curious. Did you write that one or? Um, the original idea for like these barbarians getting drunk on these like stuff leaking out of spaceships, I think was Eric Mona's idea. But the actual rules for how they work, um, one of the weird things about the the development of an adventure is when you go in and develop somebody else's words and uh, what you're doing is you're not only going through making sure the rules work, you're going through and making sure that the language works. So it's kind of a rules pass and an editorial pass at the same time. But you're also going through to make sure that it's it's fun to read, that it's you know interesting, that it ties in with um, the, the whole world that it's set in. And when I develop uh, an adventure or a product like that, it'll either be something as light as just an editorial pass that takes a few days to do, or it could end up being an entire rewrite of everything that takes weeks to do. And it ends up with a lot of the stuff that I've written is, you know, from me rather than from the author. And it's, we don't really keep track of who does what in that. So I developed the uh, Numerian fluids. I, I'm pretty sure that I wrote a lot of them, but it's hard to remember exactly how much was from the original author or what. Oh, I'm fine with that. I just uh, give you a quick story that uh, I've mentioned before on the show, but Jason McDonald, who plays Tuttle on our show, when we played Iron Guys, he played a barbarian. And it was modeled kind of after Worf on Star Trek. And he had a ritual that every time he leveled, he drank the Numerian fluid. And it is a crazy table where you roll one to 100. One being you disintegrate and cannot be resurrected in any way, shape, or form. 100, <laughs> if you remember, 100 is so good that you roll a subtable of 1 to 10. And being 1, you become, or is it 10, you are an uh, immortal god, basically. So it can go anywhere from becoming immortal to disintegrating. When he was playing, one time he rolled, and he rolled a two, <laughs> which is, wow, yeah, not good. So he rolls the two, and he luckily, that's where you lose one of your senses forever. He loses the sense of taste, which I won't get into. Ended up being a very good thing because he kept getting invited to like eating contests and drinking contests, and he would always win because he had no sense of taste anymore. So it actually came in handy. And then the next time, he rolled a 100. And then on the subtable, he rolled a two. A two is where you get the mutant template. And he was already a war priest of Gorum. And he ended up with a 26 strength. And by that, we just kept calling him Bane because he basically was Bane at that point. Nice. So he saw everything from the lows to the highs and everything in between. But it's still, to this date, we still talk about it. It was one of the most memorable things ever. That's one of the things. And... It's interesting that you mentioned how memorable it is. Um, one of my personal theories about the game is the parts that are the most memorable are when the rules get basically kind of thrown out the window to a certain extent, you know? Um, the Numerian Fluids design was a, uh, one of the early inspirations was back in first edition, they had this potion miscability table. I don't know if you remember that or... Mm -hmm. you, it, yeah, whenever, if, if in first edition you drank a potion and its effects were still going and you drank a second potion, you had to roll on this table to see how these potions mixed together inside of you. And they could blow up, they could become permanent. There's all sorts of different things they could do. Uh, I remember at one point there was one adventure that I was playing in where another player was like falling out of like a, a skyship or something and he was desperate. So he drank a potion of fly and then a potion of, uh, I think healing because he was almost, a, almost dead. And he didn't know about this table and had to roll on it and, and uh, somehow avoided exploding and, and making it all the way to the ground. But that always stuck in my head as, as fun. And so something like the, the Lumerian fluids table kind of, it's like the deck of many things or, um, uh, the harrowed, you know, type uh, element where it's it's completely random what will happen to you. And uh, it's kind of like gambling to a certain extent, I guess, where you're gambling with your character's future. Um, and even when something bad happens, like you lose your sense of taste, 
that ends up being a huge part of you know the fun of the game. So I think it's really important for those types of Wahoo type out of the ordinary moments to show up in adventures. Yeah, we actually um, on our podcast, we we have a lot of random tables and they've actually been written by a lot of the Paizo employees. For example, we have this thing called the Stitch Spider, which was written by Jason Keeley. It's sort of like a wand and it'll heal you, except it's poison. So you have to roll a very high fort save. And if you don't make it, there's some horrific side effects to the venom that heals you. So you get healed, but then you grow like, you know, plates for a few days or you get healed but you have hair all over you you know things like that it's just it's not horrible but there's side effects john compton made cheddar which is the robot companion for tuttle which is half robot half uh, goblin and he has all these goblin tables that it can either do really good things or explode stuff like that so we have tons of random tables created for our venture and we're always rolling on them and even we don't know what happened i made these goblin grenades and if you threw them and rolled this like a one to a five, it actually healed the monster. And in a fight, uh, Hiroji threw the goblin grenade and rolled a two and a four. And then he ended up overhealing the monsters. And we still make fun of him to this day. It's the first time ever in combat that someone healed more damage than they did when they were trying to fight. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, those random tables, are, they're kind of like their own mini games in a way, you know, whether you're, you're rolling them during play or you're rolling them when you're building an adventure. That's kind of how like the old uh, one uh, random treasure generator tables worked. And we put some of those into, you know, uh, Game Master Guide and the Ultimate Equipment. It's, it's, it's fun to do that. You know, when you're writing an adventure, you're doing a lot of creativity and a lot of decision making and all that. And it's, it's kind of therapeutic to basically turn things over to the dice and roll things up. Yeah, and this way also... It just makes things random for everyone. And it just, it's like choose your own adventure, but, you know, picking random pages because no one knows, not even the GM. It's like, usually it's a GM, you pretty much have control of everything. This is like the only time, except when you're doing combat, where you have no idea what's going to happen. And the PCs, no one knows. And then you have to change the story based on what comes up. Yeah, I really enjoyed the, the ad lib moments, uh, you know, that, that arise from rolling those types of random tables. And uh, it's, it's on par with like, you know, a player character rolling a natural one or a 20 and like suddenly shifting the course of a combat uh, dramatically over what was going to happen. And uh, cases like that, I really I love as a GM because they give you something to to like latch onto and and build memorable scenes out of. So let's let's jump to Return of the Rune Lords. So this is one of the last two adventure paths that are coming out for Pathfinder version one. And it sounds like you are going with the Age of Worms, Eric Mona school of thought, because you guys are going out with a bang. Because these the last two adventure paths sound like they're going all out insane, which is fun. But with Return of the Ruined Lords, can you tell me a little bit about why what what makes this so special? Who are the Ruined Lords? If no one has ever done Rise of the Ruined Lords or Shattered Star, like can you tell me a little bit about this whole history? Yeah, absolutely. So it goes back to the very first adventure path we did for Pathfinder, Rise of the Rune Lords. And uh, when we started uh, that adventure path with Burnt Offerings, we were not only starting a brand new adventure path, we were starting a brand new world. We didn't have any proper nouns, you know? So we had to make up all of the stuff, Varicia, Rune Lords, uh, Sandpoint, all of these things had to be basically introduced to players, you know, out of the blue. And you had to learn about them while you were, you know, playing the game. So we really wanted to go with something that was kind of classic, you know, a small town with the bad evil wizard is the main bad guy for the entire adventure path. And then also build in a lot of history to everything so that we had places to build from. So the Rune Lords are basically this ancient uh, cast of wizards who ruled this ancient, ancient, ancient realm uh, 10,000 years in the past called Thassalon. And there were seven of them. Each of the Rune Lords was associated with one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, they each specialized in a different form of magic and they all had like their own special pole arms and their own special swords and their own special like outfits and everything. And we seeded a lot of that stuff into that first adventure, but then focused most of that adventure path on one rune lord, Karzug, who was the rune lord of greed. And by the time you finished that first adventure path, you'd not only been introduced to the world of Galarian, but you'd also been introduced to this, you know, this 
ancient uh, sect of wizards who uh, was out there and you defeated one of them, but the, there was always this like lingering threat that there are still six more out there potentially ready to wake up and uh, wreak havoc. And then several years passed and we do uh, a sequel to this one called Shattered Star. And the idea there was we wanted to basically just do a, a full on dungeon crawl adventure path where you go out and gather the artifacts and build things together and basically make it a super simple, you know, just classic uh, play experience. And we decided to attach that to the Rune Lord storyline and built more into it. Um, the plan always was to eventually have sort of a trilogy out of all of this with the last adventure path uh, covering all of the other Rune Lords waking up and starting to, you know, run amok in the world. But we couldn't really do that until people knew what they were, you know, what they were. We had to earn the right to get that crazy, that wild. When we did Age of Worms, we had already like 15, 20 years or something of D&D's history with characters like Tensor and Caius and Dragotha and all of these characters that we could pull out of the woodwork and throw into, you know, on screen. We couldn't do that when we first started with Pathfinder. But uh, now that we're wrapping up the first edition, we can go in and just get really crazy with a lot of these lingering threats we've been talking about all this time. So what is the general story? I don't want to do too many spoilers since probably a lot of people are going to want to play it or run it. So can you give me like the general overview of Return of the Rune Lords? And then obviously the first one we're talking about is Secrets of Roderick's Cove. Sure. Um, I'll try to do this without as many spoilers as possible. Basically, um, the campaign starts in the small town of Roderick's Cove, which is uh, up on the north coast of Varicia's Lost Coast region. It basically begins with all of the Rune Lords have these, these weapons called the Swords of Sin. And uh, each one of these swords is associated with one of these sins and types of magic. And they would give these swords to their champions, their bodyguards. And... Once the rune lords, you know, got killed or went into hiding or all, all, all that, their swords of sin went dormant. They, they, you know, lost most of their powers. So with uh, Return of the Rune Lords, one of these swords uh, suddenly wakes up. And the only reason it would do that, of course, is because one of the rune lords wakes up. And this sets into a chain, into motion, a chain of events. You know, the PCs get a hold of the sword. Uh, they start seeing like other, in, you know, bits of evidence that the rune lords are waking up. Thessalonian magic is starting to seep up out of the ground and literally in a couple of places, influencing town uh, like gang members. They're starting to use these old runes as their gang signs. There's these weird monsters climbing up out of the ground. So it's really the first adventure, Secrets of Roderick's Cove, is kind of a sandbox where the player characters are kind of exploring the town, going around to like these haunted houses and, and like cave systems and dungeons scattered throughout the area and piecing together stuff that's going on until they realize that there's definitely something happening. The Rune Lords are waking up. And uh, at that point, uh, they need to go figure out what to do with all of this, you know, this evil magic that's coming back and try to work with previous heroes from the previous adventure paths and move forward to basically save the world. So what happened to the original Rune Lords? Like what, so there were seven of them and then they, quote, went to sleep? What what happened? So Thassalon, the, the nation they ruled, was around for like, I think it was almost 2,000 years. And a couple of the Rune Lords, uh, Rune Lord Xandergul and Rune Lord Sorshan, basically were the rulers of their separate nations for the entire 2,000-some years. But the other five uh, categories have had multiple Rune Lords. I think in all, there's been 49 Rune Lords and we go into all of this in the first volume of uh, Return of the Rune Lords. It has a timeline for everything. But uh, there were only ever really seven at a time. So by the time uh, things were getting basically at the height of Thassalon, and all of these Rune Lords were getting really powerful, uh, this world-ending event called Earthfall happened. And Earthfall was basically these uh, underwater monsters, the Aboliths, uh, the Veiled Masters, uh, decided that they wanted to basically wipe humanity clean and you know, start over. And they called down all of these meteors out of the sky and basically caused this apocalypse that didn't quite end the world as well as they had hoped, um, but it did bring about the end of Thassalon. And the Rune Lords, of course, being powerful wizards, uh, saw this whole event coming through you know, divination or you know, omens or stuff like that. And so they all have these separate methods of like how they 
went into hiding or into these demiplanes or into suspended animation or became liches so they could resurrect after they die. And, and they each had their different method of, of immortality mixed with how to avoid the end of the world. But the end of the world was something that was even bigger than they thought. And Earthfall messed everything up. And they basically went into hibernation, more or less, for the next 10,000 years. And for most of that time, they've been you know, just off, off screen. And it's kind of the, um, the launch of Pathfinder is basically the launch of their return to activity. I hope that uh, is sort of a rambling answer to that question. No, that was a very good answer. And what what makes these rune lords so bad? Why why don't we want them to rise? Why not have them return? They sound like they sound like okay guys. <laughs> well, um, they basically epitomize the seven worst aspects of rulers, and by tying it to the the seven classic deadly sins, we have things like there's there's Karzug is the rune lord of greed, and he's basically going to do everything he can to amass all of the wealth in the world for himself. There's Elasnist, who's the Rune Lord of Wrath, and she just wants to see the world burn. There's Xandergold, who's the Rune Lord of Pride, and he wants everything focused on him and doesn't think anyone else deserves any attention at all. And so you've got these, these powerful personalities combined with just insane power. Uh, you know, they're all like high-level wizards, so they've got all of these abilities to, you know, use wishes and powerful magic. And... Um, Basically, the reason you don't want them back is because they're 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 kind of like the archetypical bad guys. You don't want them in charge of you know your where you're living because it's going to be awful living there. Couldn't the gods just like come down and just strike them dead, or even the gods scared of these guys? Oh, the gods could, but if they did, then we wouldn't have a game. Oh, there you go. So the real world answer. So yeah, I mean that's actually uh, something that we really tried to do with Galarian is we don't have the gods coming in and doing interventions. We don't have even high level good guy NPCs all over the place because we want the player characters to be the ones to come in and save the land, save the world. And if there's this idea that the gods can come in and um, you know just right every wrong, there's no need for heroes. There's there's no game going on, and it's it's not fun. That's that may be good for fiction where you have control over everything, but it's it's not so great for like a, a game where you want to have like a bunch of people playing characters and acting things out. In in world, the we go into the, actually this exact topic in uh, Planar Adventures a little bit. But the basic idea is that if a god comes down to you know right a wrong or change something. Uh, there's nothing humans and mortals can do about it because they're just, you know, mortals. But then other gods are going to see that and come in and change things. And this, it'll start this kind of divine arms race where each deity comes in and undoes the previous deity's act of God. And it only would culminate in basically everything getting destroyed because, you know, there's there's no check or balances in that thing. And the gods understand this. So that's why they kind of moderate themselves and and let humanity, let their worshipers, let those who uh, uh, follow their words do their work on the world. Otherwise, it becomes like Clash of the Titans. And I don't mean the horrible remakes. I mean, the original 1981 version where they keep exactly what happens. They keep one upping each other. And then before you know it, like the gods are just all their mythic creatures are all getting killed because they're killing each other off. And yeah, I, I could see, I could see how that all happens. Yeah. And it's really, it doesn't make for fun play when if, if you have a bunch of people sitting around the table and they want to do, you know, dungeon exploration or role-playing or whatever. And the GM is basically telling them this NPC comes in and does this, or this God does that. That's not role-playing. That's, you know, a bunch of people sitting around that's storytelling. And that's an entirely different sort of, uh, you know, shared experience. It's not what a game is trying to do though. So Return of the Rune Lords, the other thing I noticed is that these adventures are huge. <laughs> like, I usually read these. It seems like the word counts up on these because the pictures are tiny. There's a lot of words. And this is, like, quote, the biggest adventure you've ever written or run for Pathfinder or for the adventure Pathline. Yeah, it absolutely is. One of the things that I've wanted to do for a long time is to do an adventure path that goes from first level to 20th level. And uh, with a six-volume adventure that is locked in at 45 50 pages it's just the laws of physics don't allow you to put in enough encounters to go from first to 20th level it just it it doesn't work and so in order to be able to do this we were able to go to 20th level with wrath of the righteous because mythic allows us to throw super powerful encounters and bloat the experience points out um but that wasn't even satisfactory to me i wanted one that was just pure first to 20th level the only way to do that 
is to write longer adventures. And so for this one, we've removed the forward from uh, the adventure path. We've removed one of the support articles. So right off the bat, every adventure becomes eight pages longer. The last adventure, we've removed two of the back matter articles. And so the last adventure for Return of the Rune Lords is the longest adventure we've ever published in the Adventure Path uh, format. And even then, we we're barely able to get to 20th level in time for you to enjoy your characters doing 20th level shenanigans in the last uh, set of encounter areas. But uh, yeah, they're definitely enormous adventures, that's for sure. Yeah, because I was reading the first one. And I was like, oh, it goes from level one to five. And that's the, only the first adventure. That is a big adventure. Yeah, uh, we've managed to get to fifth level a couple of times before. Uh, first level, lower level adventures have shorter stat blocks. They, you don't have to spend as much time, you know, covering corner cases and everything. Um, so they they get a lot more bang for their buck in there. But when you get to high level, you got to start thinking of things like if you throw a dead body into a into a dungeon room, you got to keep in mind that uh, the player characters might cast speak with dead or even resurrect that body, and you have to remember that that might be a place for you to talk about more repercussions you have to talk about how flight and teleportation and resurrection and all this stuff impacts uh the game as player characters get more options uh you have to get more detailed and that means adventures take up more room so one thing i did want to touch on is that i almost forgot you wrote the very first adventure path volume ever you wrote burnt offerings for rise of the rune lords like how did that come about because you basically were the person who architect pathfinder for the next 10 plus years because you wrote the very first adventure um it was kind of to a certain extent it was being in the right place at the right time um i had been working on dungeon at that point from basically as as an editor from issue i think 103 to 150 so uh i had a lot of experience in in developing adventures i've been writing adventures even longer than that and um it just in a lot of ways, Pathfinder is the spiritual successor to Dungeon Magazine. It's 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 adventure paths. It's a series of adventures with with support material, and I had in my head a pretty strong idea of how the, such a product would work. Uh, and uh, Eric Mona did as well, uh, having been uh, the other the other half of Dungeon Magazine for that entire time. And so, with Eric basically running the publisher side of things, he didn't really have time to do much of the uh, the writing or developing of all of all of this stuff. So that basically fell to me to do that. With Wes Schneider coming along to help out with uh, a lot of the development, the back end of things. So yeah, it was kind of uh, sort of basically still doing what we'd been doing for for several years with Dungeon, but you know having a new format and being able to to try new new types of stuff out for our own. So is there anything we could talk about that isn't spoilery? I know there's some time travel of some sort. They've mentioned that many times, so I'm not going to say that's spoilery. But uh, there's some crazy stuff that you've always wanted to do that you've never been able to do. But I know you figured out how to get into Return of the Rune Lords. Yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, like you said, there's a time travel element that happens in this one. And time travel is a tricky thing for a campaign setting like this, because we can't just set an adventure path, an entire adventure path back in, say, the ancient land of Thassalon. You go back that far, and there are some gods who don't exist yet because they haven't you know, been born yet. So suddenly, several of the deities that clerics can pick from aren't available. Um, you go back that far, and there are certain races that don't exist yet. Like in Thassalon, the dwarves were still deep underground. And uh, as a result, there were, you know, people didn't really know about dwarves in Thassalon. So there's just a lot of assumptions that the core game makes that go out the window if you go back that far. And on top of that, you get in this whole element of like paradox type stuff where somebody back in time that far is like, well, I know the that Earthfall is going to happen. I'm going to stop it from happening. And suddenly they do something that basically makes the entire 10 years of products you've been publishing, you know, out, outdated. They, they no longer function. So we really don't want to, unless a game is specifically about time travel and, and changing the flow of time and all of that, it's not really something that I think can, can work well in a role-playing game. In Return of the Rune Lords, the time travel elements is pretty restricted. It, um, without getting into spoilers too much, the actual point at which the player characters are time traveling is locked into the very last adventure. But the repercussions of what they do on that last adventure ripple back through the previous ones. So certain events will take place in uh, Return of the Rune Lords that won't really make much sense at the time. 
But uh, as the, the longer you play this game, the more you'll like start framing. It. It's like, oh, we did this in part five, and that's why this thing in part two happened the way it did. I'm very much looking forward to this. But before we go, I do want to try to talk a little bit about Tyrant's Grasp, only because I personally ran Carrion Crown, and I love that. I love that adventure, especially uh, Richard Pate's adventure where you defend Frankenstein, which was like genius. That's one of my favorite adventures <laughs> of all time. It was so much fun. It's like, yes, you have to go to court and defend Frankenstein. It's like, what is going? Like only Richard writes stuff like that. He's nuts. I love his adventures. Yeah, Rich, Rich's adventures. Uh, he has very much. He's he's his style is is that he really gets into these these social situations. He's not as as strong when it comes to like just dungeon crawl type elements or or the rules themselves. But the imagination he brings to like trials or plays or dinner parties is staggering. And and. It's not and and when we when we build an adventure path, we know that's like this needs to be a Richard Pet adventure because there's something crazy going on in here. Yeah, you're talking about dinner parties. That dinner party is in Age of Worms, and right half the stuff is like alive. I know people who ran that adventure path and actually had and made a dinner party and ran the adventure during a dinner party, and they cooked the same things that were on the menu in that uh, adventure. Oh, that's awesome. We He sort of did a spiritual sequel to that dinner party in the third Hell's Rebels adventure, uh, where the players have to go to another crazy dinner party and impress a bunch of high-level NPCs. Yeah, he is his... Uh, actually, I'm very much looking forward to reading his uh, Return of the Rude Lords adventure, because I imagine it's 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 up there with, with craziness. Oh, absolutely is. It's... Um, <laughs> I don't want to get into it too spoilery, but... Uh, that his adventure is called Rune Plague. It's the third uh, Return of the Rune Lords adventure, and the plot there is that the player characters at this point know that the Rune Lords are coming back, and they've got to go to four different locations throughout Varicia and uh, basically fight against the plots of all of these, you know, Rune Lord stuff going on. So one of them will be pretty much a dungeon crawl, where it's, it's classic, you know, go into the dungeon and explore. One of them is is kind of a reverse dungeon crawl, where you're trying to defend a dungeon site, and uh, one of them is is basically a big festival, uh, which takes place. It actually takes place in Corvosa during the anniversary of uh, Queen Ilios's defeat in Curse of the Crimson Throne, and the player characters have to show someone pretty powerful around the town, uh, give them a good time, and entertain them while they are trying to learn more information about what's going on. And like some of these festival events and uh, things that Rich came up with for that, it's it's good stuff. Yeah, and he also wrote, and it, people talk about it to this day, the Council of Thieves, the play. He wrote the play one where you actually have to put the play on, but they do, quote, the deadly version of the play where people can get hurt and killed during the play. He's, he, he's, I want to meet him or talk to him. I've never met him. I heard he rarely travels and he lives overseas, but I heard he's quite a hoot. Yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty, we had him out for one of the PaizoCons here, and uh, yeah, he's, he's great fun to hang out with. But anyhow, Tyrant's Grasp. It also, it always upsets me. It's like, oh, yeah, that whole adventure path where you were trying to, like, keep the Whispering Tyrant from breaking out. Ah, he broke out anyhow. So give me a little bit, because this is like the big finale for for Pathfinder. You're going to have to go out with the bang and do something nuts. I know you yeah. wake up dead. Ron, Ron <laughs> yeah. spoiled that on an interview with us. He, he did tell us you wake up dead. Yeah, that's not so much a spoiler, because that's that's like spoiling, you know, uh, um Serpent Skull by saying you you start shipwrecked or uh, Skull and Shackles, you start press ganged on a pirate ship. That sets the mood for the entire adventure path. And it's not so much a spoiler as it is a requirement to hook the players into being interested in how it plays out. So with Carrion Crown, the initial idea for Carrion Crown was we wanted to do an adventure path that was basically six different classic horror movies. We wanted to do the Haunted House, the, the Frankenstein monster, the uh, Lovecraftian story, the vampire movie, the undead uprising movie, the werewolf movie. And that was the goal of Carrying Crown. It wasn't necessarily to push forward an agenda on the Whispering Tyrant's plot or anything like that. Uh, it ended up being the meta story simply because he is such a huge you know, mover and shaker in Ustalov. But to a certain extent, I've always felt that the Whispering Tyrant being in Ustalov does Ustalov a disservice because... Ustalov is, is meant to be, this is a place where all of the gothic horror, the classic horror stuff lives. And the Whispering Tyrant is not horror. The Whispering Tyrant is more high fantasy Lord of the Rings type stuff. And so he's he, he's undead, but he doesn't really belong there. So with Tyrant's Grasp, we're basically embracing that. Uh, he's not so much um, 
it's not intended to be a repudiation of the, the carrying crown events as much as it is embracing what his role in the world has always been meant meant to meant to be. And so for much of Pathfinder's existence, the Whispering Tyrant has been this kind of off-screen, like like the Rune Lords. He's been locked away in his his tomb and hasn't really been doing much. And in order for him to basically become a significant threat, he has to get out. It sounds a little Age of Wormsy, because uh Age of Worms, you had to go up against uh, Chaos and then kill a god. Does it sound familiar? It sounds like you got to go maybe eventually up against Whispering Tyrant, maybe? Oh, it's that. I mean, the Tyrant's Grass adventure is very much about uh, setting up a confrontation with Tarbethon. And I don't want to spoil too much. Um, it's, yeah, I don't know how much I want to spoil because I'm not really working as much yeah, on that one. Yeah, you don't have so. to spoil it. Even that, what you said, is good enough. Don't yeah. Eventually, there'll be a toe-to-toe, mano-a-mano fight. Yeah. And uh, that that's enough, I think, for most people. And it's its definitely not an end to the story. It's its basically setting something up that we want to explore more going forward. Ah, right. Because Pathfinder 2, you're not resetting anything. The story's just going to keep going, correct? No, absolutely not. I mean, yeah. when we went from uh, uh, 3.5 to the Pathfinder rules with uh, between Legacy of Fire and Council of Thieves, People were, you know, worried about, or you're going to do some sort of world-shaking event and change everything. And it's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not doing that with second edition either. In fact, my goal is for uh, when the edition changes, it should be pretty much invisible to anything in world. So, like a wizard who is inside of his house doing wizardly stuff in um, the day before second edition lines. Uh, and the day after, he won't notice any difference in how things work. The rules for how his magic works will change, but his role in the world won't change. So he goes to sleep, and it's first edition. He wakes up the next day. It's like, oh, it's second edition. My stuff works a little differently, but it's pretty much the same. Um, not even that. He just wakes up and keeps doing what he's doing. Uh, every story we told in first edition needs to be something we can tell in second edition and vice versa. Cool. And how's that going, by the way, I may, if I may ask? how is? looks like you guys have been very busy compiling lots of feedback and changing and updating the rules quite a bit. It's um, I'm on kind of the periphery of that. That's the design team is, is currently running all of the playtest feedback, all of the, um, all of the, all the heavy lifting there. And what I'm focused on is basically starting uh, getting everything else set for like the adventure pass and the campaign setting stuff and all of the other uh, products that we're going to be working on uh, once the new edition starts up. I've already I've outlined the next adventure path. We haven't announced it yet. I can't announce it yet here, but it's 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 being written by everybody, and it's it's tricky because the the rules aren't done yet. But they have to. We have to basically do an entire six months of products without a set in stone uh, bunch of rules. So we're using the playtest rules for now and getting ready to change things as as it comes along. So it's it's pretty tricky. Obviously, that's what happened with Starfinder. And you can see it like, you know, we're doing um, Dead Sons. And like in books one and two, it's definitely, I wouldn't say rough, but you can tell the difference between, say, books one and two and like five and six, where the rules actually all came out and they weren't just like going by the seat of their pants, things like that, you know, subtle differences. Uh, one thing that I'm already pretty sure of is that when we get to the first Adventure Path for second edition, I'm probably going to have it set up in a way that rather than the classic earn experience points as you go, I'm probably going to use a milestone setting. So like at certain points as you're playing through, you're going to level up regardless of whether or not you have experience points. So I'm still haven't figured it quite out yet, but that's a problem we ran into with council of thieves because that was the first adventure path we did for pathfinder. We weren't quite ready. We, we didn't quite have the, the uh, complexities of pathfinders experience point system worked out yet. Um, as a result, that adventure path only goes up to 13th level. And that was a that was a problem when we got to the last few adventures because we'd already ordered cover art, and we've got monsters on the last few council of thieves that were basically they were they were too high level to use, and we had to come up with creative solutions for that. So it was it was a tricky trick. Well, I will tell you from personal experience, who's someone who only runs adventure paths for the last twelve years, and that's all I run. We have abandoned experience points quite a long time ago, and we only use the milestone system. And I think you just do it. You just say, okay, you are now level two. You are now level three. It makes things a lot easier. 
and my guys also it also almost has like chapters to the story almost like well milestones you know like oh now ta-da you know that you're going to the next area and it helps even prepare them knowing okay the monsters will be harder the encounters will be harder i i, I like the milestone system a lot more than experience points i haven't used experience points in years one of the things i really really like about experience points is that it gives you something concrete at the end of every session that you can write down in your character sheet and, and you can see that, all right, I'm now 23% closer to level. I'm now 48% closer to leveling. Um, with the milestone system, you don't get that. It, it kind of, it's, it's frustrating to me if you play an entire session and your character sheet looks the same as it did when you started the session. And, you know, if you level up during a game, of course, you get all sorts of stuff, but it's, as a player, I've always valued the, the seeing like where the experience points progression is going so I can kind of anticipate, you know, oh, next session I'm going to level up or I'm not going to level up for a couple more sessions, that type of thing. Um, so I don't know. I, I could see both ways. Certainly the milestone system is much more uh, elegant when it comes to a narrative-based thing, like a long-term thing, like a campaign setting. Yeah, no, I'm talking specifically for, for adventure paths. Well, I kind of do both because I keep their experience points. so. I tell them, they don't even ask me. At this point, they don't even ask me. They just say, how close are we? And I'll say 50%, 75%. And it, same thing, like I don't even give them numbers. I just tell them you're almost there, like another one or two adventures. So I see I see what you're saying and that you almost want to, but I think that's almost in the GM and that can be handled by just a note here and there, like give them feedback, tell them how they're doing, you know, you know, so they have an idea that they're progressing. I think it can be done, you know, manually, not even through a mechanical system. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's really on the GM to make sure that that uh the player characters are anticipating and they don't like get frustrated because they've been five sessions without leveling up. So we know we're running out of time. Is there anything you want to tell us that to be on the lookout besides Rise of Rune Lords and Tyrant's Grasp? Any other tidbits coming out in uh, the world of Pathfinder? Uh yeah, the uh we just actually yesterday got in the final uh printed copies of the Sandpoint book that I wrote and uh that's coming out in a couple months and anyone who's been interested in Sandpoint which is the 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 town that was introduced in Burnt Offerings and we've gone back to several times uh should absolutely check this book out. I wrote the whole thing and have a whole bunch of like you know long-term secrets and um plots and and shenanigans revealed in there. Um, Sandpoint doesn't play a big role in Return of the Rune Lords, but there's a point in the second adventure where you do stop in Sandpoint for one night. And so you could certainly use this book to, be, you could use the Sandpoint book to run your own campaign. No, I know a lot of people love Sandpoint just because it just has a nice little connotation to it. It was the first adventure. It just almost has like that seaside town, it has goblins. It just has like a little bit of everything, sort of like that sleepy, fun town that's not too powerful that like little goofy things could happen in it yeah that was the whole point of it too is is to basically we wanted we wanted a place for player characters to want to to defend to protect to enjoy living in and um you look back at uh you know earlier editions of dnd you've got uh locations like homlet which people it's so detailed that that people can't help but become involved in it i definitely like sandpoint it also reminds me was it of age of worms diamond lake of course Diamond Lake ends up getting completely destroyed, which is a good motivator to get people moving. Yeah, Diamond Lake is an interesting, it's interesting you bring that up because we always intended to build Diamond Lake up as this terrible, just gross little town that the point was that you are heroes who, you're people who lived in Diamond Lake and you want to leave because it's an awful place to be. And that was intended to be a big part of the motivation of the early part of Age of Worms was getting enough you know, experience and money together so that you could escape this awful, awful town. And it kind of ended up happening the reverse because we put so much detail and, and work into Diamond Lake that people fell in love with it and they didn't want to leave. And so that was why with um, Burnt Offerings, we basically took a reverse of that. It's like, let's make a town that everybody wants. It's not a perfect town. There's there's warts and stuff like in it. It's got a some gross history and some evil people living in it. But overall, it's a nice place to live. Yeah, my character's went into Diamond Lake. I forgot there was like an abandoned house somewhere. They took over the house. They were living there. They loved that place. And then dragons come and burn the whole place down and destroy everything, which actually really good motivation for them to go then kill the bad guys because their house got burned down. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a tricky thing to do is you don't want to just use like box text to take away everything the player characters have, but you do want to, you know, motivate them. So it's it's kind of a balancing act. 
Yeah, well, they didn't really lose anything. It was just the house. But still, it's it's funny because even to this day, I remember that because they were so upset. They're like, oh, our house is gone. What happened to our house? <laughs> Thank you so much, James. We got to talk about everything, the whole history of D&D and Pathfinder and everything you've ever worked on. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, this is great. All right. Thanks a lot, James. Hey, everyone. Steve here. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. I could probably talk to James for hours upon hours since he's been in this industry for 30 years. I'm definitely going to have him on the show again, and we will just talk about all things Pathfinder and D&D related since he has seen it all. One thing I do want to note, if you want, you can easily find Dungeon Magazine number 12 on the internets, and I would strongly suggest you find it because his first adventure is there, and it's actually pretty cool. It's a choose-your-own-adventure where you play a 12th level fighter. And the funniest thing is the little blurb. It says, James Jacobs lives in the town of Point Arena in the Northern California coast, where he is a sophomore in high school. He got involved in gaming in the fifth grade and is now a dungeon master. In his spare time, James enjoys both reading and writing horror stories, as well as drawing. I love how it was almost like a thing back then to become a dungeon master. It was like getting a black belt back then. It's like, oh, you are a dungeon master? Cool. But yes, I strongly suggest you just hunt the internets. Just type in Dungeon Magazine number 12. It comes up pretty quickly. And yeah, check it out. James's adventure actually still holds up to this day. You don't actually have to play it as a you know 12th level fighter and fight everything. But it has a choose your own adventure mechanism where you actually you know have to select what you want to do. And then you turn to that section. And it's pretty good, especially considering he wrote it 30 years ago when he was a sophomore in high school. I think this James guy might be going somewhere. Anyhow, if you're new to the Rule for Combat podcast, do check us out on Discord. We got a lot going on there. You can just go to discord.rulefforcombat.com. We actually play a lot of games of Pathfinder and Starfinder. Also, do check out our main podcast where we're going through the Dead Sons Adventure Path. And if you like interviews with people from Paizo and other members of the role-playing community, do subscribe to our podcast. We are going to have a couple of more coming up very soon. We have several already in the can, and look for another interview from another person from Paizo next week. Anyhow, thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. You've been listening to Roll for Combat, a Starfinder actual play podcast. If you have a question or comment for the show, please visit us at RollForCombat.com or drop us a line at contact at RollForCombat.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, and other social media platforms. been listening to Roll for Combat. Until next week, always remember that strange women lying in ponds distributing swords is no basis for a system of government.